grateful to be here. I want to um, kind of talk a little bit about uh, where we're going uh, this morning. And <laughs> I'm so sorry. I looked up and I saw the title. It, it's actually the promise. It's not the promise of prayer. I, I might I might have messed up. I'm sorry, Heather, if I gave you that. Okay. <laughs> One of us might have messed up, and I'm sorry about that. But I looked up and I was like, we're not talking about prayer this morning. So we're not talking about prayer this morning. All right. But we are talking about a promise this morning, and I and I I want to I want to start by talking about the fact that this this promise is rooted in history, that 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 Acts is a book about history. Acts is a book about our history. The book of Acts is, uh, in my mind, the most significant work of history for the the Christian for the Christian Church. It is it is like I said, it is our history. It's um it's where the Church of Jesus Christ was first established. And it should, it should be read as such. We should read it as our history. We should look at it like our history, our shared and collective history. It's a work of history concerning Christ, but it's a work of history concerning the church. So when you read the book, it's training you in what the global church should look like. And when you read the book, it's helping you see uh, through some of the early manifestations of God's presence. Um, it's helping you. It's helping you begin to ask the questions concerning yourself, and, and, and questions like, "What should my life look like based on what I see here?" and "And what should the life of our church look like and our churches look like based on what we see here?" The Book of Acts is kind of an opportunity for us to deprogram ourselves. From all of the kind of cultural and, and, and sociological baggage that we bring into our identity as Christians and into our identity as the church. And it helps strip us bare and just acts, acts and leaves us asking the question, what's important, right? What's really important? In the church of Jesus Christ. Now the church of Acts can be emulated in every way. It can be imitated in, in all things. For example, some moves of the spirit are not necessarily what we would call normative. The miraculous just shouldn't be expected to happen all the time at any time. And in every church. The supernatural by default shouldn't feel natural. It has to feel supernatural. Does that make sense? It should be seen. As supernatural, and what happens sometimes is customary in our in our contemporary modern day culture. It, what happens? We bring down the supernatural in Christianity and make it appear natural. For example, if you're on social media for any extended period of time, or if you follow the same people I follow, maybe you don't follow these people. But if you if you if you if, if you're friends with the same people that I'm friends with on social media, then every once in a while you'll hear someone make a statement like, the Lord told me to tell y'all that you are on the brink of breakthrough. Just keep pushing through. Keep praising and then he's going to show you daylight. And that sounds powerful. That sounds miraculous. That sounds supernatural. But, I mean, come on. How many social media friends do you have, right? God gave you the same word to all your social media friends, right? Every single one of them? No, that's not, that's not how this works. So we tend, to, we tend to want the supernatural to manifest itself so badly that we can sometimes manufacture manifestations of God. 
And we also run the risk of doing the same or doing, doing harm to the work of God when we do so. And we tend to do the same thing when it comes to the book of Acts. We read the book of Acts and we want these manifestations so bad that we tend to manufacture them instead of allowing God to do them. So, so we, can't, we can't necessarily copy and imitate the book of Acts in that regard. And we can't copy and imitate the book of Acts and everything just simply because the, book, the, the church wasn't perfect. It had its share of Judaizers and legalists. It had its moments of disagreement and its moments of doubt. Dr. Dr. Mahler, Albert Mahler, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, writes concerning the reality of these problems in the early church, and he says this in quote, the amazing, the amazing thing about the book of Acts is that it presents the early Christian churches with incredible honesty. There are some great moments detailed in Acts, such as Saul's conversion from the persecutor of the church to the Apostle Paul and Stephen proclaiming Jesus' lordship even in the face of martyrdom. Yet Acts is equally candid and honest in showing the persecution and the weakness and the hardship when Priscilla and Aquila must correct Apollos' teachings, for example, when Paul and Barnabas part ways. From this, Christians should gather that the people living in the book of Acts, like Christians today, had their moments of failure and had their moments of faithfulness. The early church was spectacular, but the early church wasn't flawless. We only wake up like this when Jesus comes back. That was a test just to see how many people listen to Beyonce. Nobody in the room. There, you got it. Amen. Praise God. All right. But nevertheless, there is so much for us to observe and learn from, from, from our God-inspired history. And the emphasis, again, is on history, right? How do we know it's history? How do we know that it's history? First, because it's an actual person that Luke is writing to. He writes in the very beginning of this chapter, verse 1, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in my first book. Who is Theophilus? There's some speculation about who Theophilus is. Theophilus, some argue, could be a code name for a possible camp of saints that are facing persecution in this particular day and time. And so he writes Theophilus as a code name. Others argue that maybe Theophilus could simply be translated friend of God. Theos, God. And the, philo uh, the, and the uh, Phyllis is the friend of God portion. Friend. And so some people think that when he says Theophilus, that he's making a general address to just all people that are Christians, friends of God. But more than likely, it is an actual person, and more than likely, it is an actual person with status and clout in the government even possibly of that day. And one reason we learn that we lean in that direction is because in the first book that Luke writes to Theophilus, he addresses him most excellent Theophilus. He addresses him as if he's speaking to a person and not just to a group of people. Most excellent is oftentimes a, a term used to refer to govern, government officials or high-ranking authorities in that particular day and era. So this isn't story time for Luke. This is rooted and grounded in history. This is nonfiction, not fiction. And I need you to understand that about the book of Acts. What we read is, again, our history. We know it's history because he writes to a man concerning it, but we also know it's history because of who wrote it. Luke. 
This is the second volume of a two-part work that Luke composed covering the early history of Christianity. The first book was the Gospel of Luke, the third of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke's purpose for writing the first book is communicated in the very first verses of the first book. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, he says, Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, or who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so the Gospel of Luke was written to give Theophilus, this seemingly pretty important guy, a clear and orderly explanation of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And why did he write it to Theophilus? He says that he wrote it to Theophilus basically so that he could have a complete and an accurate truth for everything that he's been taught. So Luke, this man that according to Paul in Colossians chapter 4, is a well-respected medical physician, his words make perfect sense when you consider them in the, in the light of, of, of a physician, right? Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. He's a man of science. He's a man that studies. He's a man that looks at evidence and connects dots. So it makes sense that he's investigating everything that has been said concerning Jesus Christ. Now again, as you always hear me say, many authors of the scriptures went through great detail to help us see that these narratives are tied into history. The names that we read and, 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 the, and, and the names that we hear are real people in the first century. The events that we encounter as we walk through this together are real events. The moments are real. The apostles are real. But then Luke follows this, this, this idea, this, this first book that talks about Jesus while he was here. He follows that first book with this second book. And he gives us an explanation for the second book in Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, he says, again, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in my first book until the day that he was taken up, after which he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first work gives a full, accurate account of everything that happened while Jesus was here. Luke, the gospel of Luke. But the second book, the book of Acts gives a full and accurate account of everything that happens after Jesus leaves. Does that make sense? But both books are historical. Luke's point is that this story doesn't end with Jesus' departure. In fact, this story is just beginning. Hence the reason for a second book. Luke's historical investigation um, doesn't change from one volume to the next. His historical investigation remains the same. His rigor to look into all the facts remains the same. So again, this is our history. 
It's a short history, though. That's the crazy thing about it, is that the, the span of the, 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 book of Luke, the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28 is only a span of 30 years. It's not an extensive history. It's a short history. One theologian talks about this short history, and he, he says that it is, in quote, three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In the years between 8033 and 8064, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. He continues and says it has spread into every corner of the globe, has more than 2 billion adherents. It has an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and, of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the spirit came, end quote. Three decades, but what made those three decades most powerful? The promise, which is where I'll divert my attention for the remaining time. The three decades were powerful. The history was impactful because of the promise. See, the promise is what connects the first book of Luke to the second book of Luke. Jesus is training, equipping, teaching, doing, and leading and Jesus is leaving the apostles behind to continue his work. Is captured and connected by the promise. Luke captures that thread in, in, immediately in the first chapter. He talks about the promise immediately because the promise is essential to the rest of the book. Christ is leaving, but the promise is coming, is what he writes. And this is what makes his leaving possible for the church. The church can continue because the promise is coming. Does that make sense? He says in verse 4 of chapter 1, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the connecting tissue between the first and the second book, the promise that God's people will be with the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, there is no church. There is no second book without the Spirit of God. There is no continuation of the story without the Spirit of God. Regarding the promise, Jesus said that you've heard this from me, indicating that he has spoken concerning this before. And in fact, we find that he has in our recorded readings in the Gospel of John. Days before he died, he said in John chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, talking about the promise, talking about the Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says in that same chapter, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the promise, the spirit whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance that all that I have said to you. So here we see one of the primary purposes of the spirit is to bring back to remembrance the things that Jesus has said concerning himself. Remember Jesus 
while Jesus was here, he went about teaching and doing according to Acts chapter 1 verse 1. And the disciples were present, but now the Spirit will be present to teach them everything and to bring to their remembrance everything that he taught them. So the Spirit will now be the ever-present teacher in the bodily absence of Jesus, teaching them and working through them to teach others. He says this in John chapter 15 concerning the same Spirit. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so he will bear witness, the Spirit, and you will bear witness. Now what some of you may be saying, okay, are, is, are both of us going to bear witness? How is this going to work? And the answer is actually that the promise is not two promises, it's one promise. If you're, if, if you're reading this, what you, may, what you may probably possibly come up with is the idea that what's happening is that the Spirit will bear witness by bearing witness through us. That's his primary means of bearing witness. He bears witness by empowering us to be witnesses. And so that's how he bears witness and we bear witness. We bear witness by his power. So when Jesus leaves and, and, and the Spirit comes, the Spirit will bear witness about Christ and he will bear witness in us, working in us, and he will bear witness through us concerning Christ. And so the teaching and the doing of Jesus continues on, but instead of Jesus' physical bodily presence being here to do the teaching and the doing, it continues on through the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Instead of the tangible presence of God residing on the outside, it will now dwell permanently in us. Are you, are you tracking with that? In other words, Jesus doesn't leave because we, we no longer need the tangible presence of God. He leaves partially because his people need the tangible presence of God in us and not just outside of us. And, and, I'll, and I'll show you where he says that. He literally says in, the chap in chapter 16 of John that it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. You say, how can it be to my advantage that Jesus leaves? And he says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all of the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the promise is essential for us because we receive the presence of God that we otherwise would not have without, uh, without Christ leaving. He says, it's to your advantage because when I leave, I sin. And it's that presence, the Spirit of God, that is necessary for you and I to continue on fulfilling the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ as his church. And it's for that reason that Jesus tells the apostles in the first chapter of Acts, verse 4 and 5, do not depart from Jerusalem. Don't leave. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from him. Wait. Jesus speaks of the necessity 
of waiting. The apostles must wait in order to continue in the movement that he has initiated. You would think that Jesus would be like, all right, let's get rolling, right? I'm, I'm, I've resurrected, heading out, ascending into heaven to be, with, to be with my father. You guys get to work, get busy. But he says, wait. This shows us that while the church may be the primary vehicle for the advancement of God's mission in the earth, the spirit is the source that fuels and powers that vehicle. How many people sing Back to the Future? Anybody? Good, you know this then. This is great. I thought, I thought my crowd was too young that I've seen Back to the Future. I'm kind of old. 1985, that was a long time ago. At least it seems that way. So I'm realizing that I'm getting a little older every year because I got people around me that have not seen movies that I feel like are very near and dear to me. So Back to the Future was very near and dear to me as a seven-year-old nerd. And, um, and Back to the Future had this crazy, crazy car that I wanted to buy when I got older. Now it looks ridiculous. But I wanted to, I wanted to buy it when I got older because it was the coolest car ever. And, and Marty McFly, the character in Back to the Future, jumped in the car and he drove 88 miles per hour. And, and 88 miles per hour was the mark he needed to hit to, um, um, to initiate the flux capacitor. And the flux capacitor would give him enough juice to go back to the future, right? And he, and he would go back to the future and he went back to the future to the 1950s. And when he got back to the, and when he went to the past in 1950s and he found the professor that had created the car in the 80s, he said, hey man, you got to help me get home. This wasn't supposed to happen. And the guy says, all right, we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to help you get back home. He says, okay, where's the car? I got the car. It's parked. All right, awesome. Okay, what do you need? He says, man, I, I, I need, um, I need. Uh, some fuel to power it. He's like, okay, cool. And, and how much fuel does it need? He says it needs enough for 1.2 gigawatts of power. And Doc Brown goes crazy. It's like 1.2 gigawatts. You know, we, we can't find that kind of power around here, right? Because no matter how awesome the car was, and no matter how, how, how crazy good the car was built, and, and no matter how cool the car looked, if it didn't have the 1.2 gigawatts, it couldn't go anywhere. That's the church. That's the church. Is that we can build all kinds of neat buildings and we can build all kinds of great ministries and we can have beautiful children's ministries and we can have great preaching and we can have great singing. Or if you come to our church, we can have me and Corey up here just kind of piddling around on some Sundays and trying our best. But, but nevertheless, it does not matter if the Spirit doesn't go with us. If the Spirit of God isn't working in our church, then our lives and our church is not working. It's not functional. The church cannot move without the Spirit. The church cannot thrive and flourish without the Spirit. The church cannot accomplish its mission without the Spirit. So it, 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 it's, wor it's worth us pausing and asking ourselves right now in what ways are we leaning in and on the Spirit to live our Christian lives? In what ways am I leaning in and on the Spirit to live this life that God has called me to live? In what way are we leaning in and on the Spirit as a church to guide our steps and to order our steps? Are you leaning in on the Spirit in your battle against sin, or are you just resolved that you can't fight? 
Because maybe the reason why you're so exasperated in your fight against sin is because you aren't trusting and leaning in on the Spirit at all for strength. The Bible says those that live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Submitting to God's Spirit is what gives us power against the war of the flesh, or against our flesh against our sin? Are you submitting to God, submitting to the Spirit in your bouts with weakness, physical weakness, emotional weakness, uh, psychological weakness? The Bible says in Romans 8, spiritual weakness. The Bible says that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we all, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When our prayers are too weak to be uttered, the Spirit helps us. Are you leaning on the Spirit? Are you depending on the Spirit? Moses, when he was on the mount, he, he, he was talking about talking to God, and God was giving him direction. And, and Moses, as he received that direction and thought about what was in front of him, he said to God, he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He says, if you don't go, I don't want to go. If you're not with me, I don't want to go. How often do you simply just reach to the heavens? And say, Spirit of God, go with me. Go with me. How often do you clutch your wheel as you are driving into your office and say, Spirit of God, be with me. Go to bed at night before you turn in and just say, Spirit of God, be with me tomorrow. Spirit of God, help me raise these children. Spirit of God, help me open my mouth and share Jesus Christ with my neighbor. Oftentimes, do we just simply ask for his help? The disciples, in hearing about this promise, have a great question. In verse 6 of chapter 1, and they say, So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Actually, a reasonable question. It's, it's, it's a question, basically, if you said it another way, it's a question that's basically uh, that they're basically stating, is this the moment where everything will be fixed? You're telling us about this promise, that this promise concerning God's Spirit. Is this the moment that everything's going to be fixed when the Spirit comes? Or is this the moment where everything is going to be all restored when the Spirit comes? Or is this the moment that we take our rightful place of authority and power? Israel gets back on the map, so to speak, when the Spirit comes. See, the disciples understood the arrival of the Spirit to be the moment where everything is resolved. They heard about the coming of the Spirit from Jesus' from Jesus's mouth and, and interpreted it as, um, as the moment 
um, that, that, that it's going to be fixed and it's going to be right and this is going to be fantastic. But Jesus' words back to them are even more fantastic than the question they ask. And Jesus' words are this. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Every once in a while, my kids, they, they don't do it as much as they used to, but every back in the day, my kids would, um, you know, um, my, my wife would get a phone call or, or somebody would knock on the door at our house and one of my boys would come in after the person leaves or after my, after my wife gets off the phone and, and they would say, um, um, Mom, who was that? And, and she would say, uh, Nunya. Anybody, anybody heard of that before? Anybody heard of that? Anybody heard of that person? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of us know that person, don't we? And, and they would be like, Nunya. And she was like, yeah, none of your business. Right? This is, this is Jesus' response. It's, it's hey, is, is this the time that everything's going to be restored? And Jesus' response in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a more contemporary fashion is your business. This is the Father's work. This is the Father's business. This isn't your business. But the second thing he says is even more potent because he says, um, after he says that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you aren't receiving the Spirit because it's time to wrap this up. You aren't receiving the Spirit because the work is finished. The coming of the Spirit is not a mark of a completed work. The coming of the Spirit is a mark of the work beginning. And so don't sit on the promise of God, right? They're saying, well, the promise is here, so we're rising to power. No, it's not. That. Don't sit on the promise. The promise isn't for you to rise to elite status, Right? I mean, are you sitting on the promise? Are you like the disciples and, 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 and maybe, maybe you're thinking that the purpose of God's promise is to enthrone you? Are you relying on his power to make a name for yourself? I mean, do you, I mean let, me, let, me ask you, let me ask you this, because this is, this, is, this is how we can kind of digest this and process this. When do we ask for the Spirit's help? When do we ask for God's help? Do we ask for God's help when we, when we are trying to advance on our jobs? Do we ask for God's help when we, when we are trying to, you know, trying to uh, gain more income in our wallets? Are we asking for God's help when we are trying to make a name for him and sharing the gospel with our neighborhood and our friends? Are we asking for God's help in terms of strength to serve? There's a chance that maybe... Maybe, maybe we don't ask for his help here, but maybe we ask for his help here because we are like the disciples in the sense that we are sitting on his promise. That we think the mark of it, that we think the, that we think the promise is for our power, empowerment alone. But it's, it's for his glory. It's for the advancement of his mission. And so, yes, he can help you do all of those things that you pray for. But that's not simply why he's empowered you with the gift. Of his spirit. He's empowered you with the gift of his spirit to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's empowered you with the gift of his spirit to advance the mission of God. And yes, part of that mission could be your promotion. 
part of that mission could be for you to have extra finances so that you can be more liberal in your giving and sharing. But at the end of the day, you have the Spirit of God to be witnesses, ultimately. His Spirit has been given to you in order to be witnesses in this city, in, this in your neighborhoods, and in this state, and ultimately in this world. So the question is not simply, are you, are you depending on the Spirit of God, but what are you depending on the Spirit of God for? It's, it's so appropriate that, that this passage is closed when we get to verse 9 and, and we hear these words come from, uh, come from the heavens. It says, after he said these things, when he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's a couple of things here. Obviously, we see the bodily Christ ascend into heaven. Let's us know that he is forever, 100% God and 100% man. He is forever united with man. Hyperstatic union. He doesn't float into the clouds as a, as a ghostly being. He, float, he floats into the clouds with his nail-scarred hands and feet still in place. So that's one thing we see. Another thing we see is the fact that he's coming back, that he shall return, and that the, and that the way that he left with all power and authority in his hands will be the way that he, that he returns with all power and authority in his hands, piercing the clouds. You know, some people get all bent out of shape about, well, man, it seems like it's been so long, and, and, and it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. Oh, man, y'all can't believe you guys still believe that. And I'm like, do you know how many years it was before he showed up? Settle down. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's a lot of years before he showed up. We're talking about God here. Not moving on your timetable. God talks about time as basically being subjective to him. He moves in and out as he pleases. And so we see that, but, 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 but here's what I want us to see is that is that Jesus picks this moment to leave. He says, you have power coming when the promise arrives. And you will be my witnesses. The one that is coming will step in right where I left off. And that he will be the teacher. And that he will be the doer. And he feels like that's enough. I find that fascinating. That he leaves on that. Because what he's telling you is that what the spirit brings to the church is all the church needs in order to fulfill its mission. You now sometimes we have these prayers and we're like, man, I wish Jesus was here. If Jesus was here, it just if he spoke it out of his own mouth and said, Brian, stop doing this, I'd be like, okay, yes, sir, Jesus. You know, I'm not going to do it anymore. Right? I mean, that's, that's, how most of us, that's how most of us think, right? And, and, and Jesus is saying, the Spirit is coming, and when he arrives, you've got what you need. You have what you need. 
He's living not just simply outside of you, but he's living now in you to conquer sin and to be bold enough to open your mouth and proclaim the gospel and to find the strength necessary to, to, to serve in whatever capacity that he's calling you to serve and to step in the darkness and shine light in those places without it. It says they were gazing, looking into the heavens. I mean, can you imagine Jesus is leaving? They're saying, man, Jesus, don't go. I'm going to miss you. Man, it looks like he's getting farther. Farther. I don't think I can see him anymore. And then the two angels, two men and stood, by, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? He's gone. He's gone. It's almost like they're saying, he's not coming back, but he gave you what you need. Now go in power with what you've been given. The spirit of the living God lives on the inside of the church. Lives on the inside of his people. And so may we go, amen? May we go and do all that he's called us to do in the power that he's given us to do it, amen? Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me?